Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, chronicling a terrible week in America. So, as if the rolling crises of the last few months haven't been enough, this last week was one that felt different. We had police violence, the killing of Black people in the streets of America that led to protests around the country, that led to a violent response from the police, that led to the defense of that violent response by the administration, and on and on and on. And it's been very hard to process. It's been exhausting, and it's been demoralizing, and it's been a challenge for journalism to capture what this is all about and what it's like. One of the pieces that has stood out in this period, but really over the last year, was published in the last week in the New York Times by their cultural critic, Wesley Morris. It's called The Videos That Rocked America, The Song That Knows Our Rage. And it's about Wesley Morris's experience just thinking about the power of video and the power of these particular videos of the killing of Black people in the streets of the country and his response to that. And it ends with this amazingly emotional moment where he just finally sort of collapses uh, under the weight of all this as he's listening to music from Patti LaBelle. But it actually is a brilliant, brilliant piece of journalism, and I'm so happy to have Wesley Morris on today. Welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me, Kyle. Uh, You know, one of the frustrations that I've had in the last few weeks, in the last few months, I guess it really started for me when once Trump came in, is that I've found myself frustrated that what I'm reading in journalism doesn't doesn't reflect the world that I'm living in. Like it doesn't it doesn't reflect the feelings that I have, and it doesn't it doesn't capture what it's like to live through this moment. Um, and I got to say, the piece that you wrote this week, it was for the first time something that like I thought, wow, this, this really boils this down to what what it feels like. This is what it's like, and I was I was really moved by it. Thank you. And I know that I heard today that in a, uh, and we'll talk about this later, in a conversation with the staff of the Times, the publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, said he was brought to tears by it too, which, which I was glad to hear. So first off, what, do you understand what I'm saying when I said that it's hard for journalism to really capture what it feels like to live in America right now? Or do you disagree with that? I always find that, I listen, I hear people when they, when they say they feel that way. Some of my best friends are some of the best journalists. Yeah. And some of those people are frustrated by things they read, both among their, you know, professional, you know, uh, you know, work colleagues and just in journalism writ large. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of occasions in which well, I guess I'm curious. I'll, I will say what I'm about to say, and then I'm going to ask you a question. But uh, what I will what I will say is that the idea of having to be I mean, being fair is important, but being being equal in the representation of of options for a point of view, um, or it's like you you cannot put this this piece will not be able to stand in public if it doesn't have two legs (laughs) right and if you just build a piece you can make a table that has one leg it'll just it's it'll stand up just fine i i don't like this idea of having to find another person 
to say the opposite thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all, you know, it's, it's the classic objectivity question and classic journalistic neutrality question. Yeah. And I think that, I think a thing that a lot of people have been feeling for the last three years is, well, some of that objectivity doesn't make sense anymore because some of the things that need to be written about and unpacked and discussed are happening in an alternative reality. Yeah. And that's going to require probably other journalistic approaches to, to either unpack or explain or, in, or investigate. Um, so I, I, I'm very much a person who doesn't have a lot of patience for it. I understand from which, from the, the place from which it comes, I don't have a lot of patience for it right now. And I'm, so I guess the question for you is, is that, is that a version of a thing that you mean? No, I mean, the, I mean, I mean the opposite. I mean, I agree with you. Like what I mean is we have a president who seems to be a psychopath. Yeah. And he's, he's a he's a liar and he's a racist and he, I don't think he's well. And, <laughs> and that's hard to convey. And it's hard to measure what that's like to live with that as a country, right? Uh, to live with a person in the highest office in that situation. And I, I don't know. I just think, I, I think that, so I, I don't at all mean this objectivity thing. In fact, I think the, the, the flaws that, that have happened and we saw it at your newspaper this week. This is what happened, right? We had this, this this thing where like somebody decided that if somebody has a noxious view, the world needs to hear about it. Yeah. Um, and I thought even on the opinion pages, I, I thought it was a dumb idea. And a lot of your colleagues thought about it, thought that too. So anyway, we can get we can get into that later, but I agree with you. And I think that I think there's been there's been too much effort to stick to the old forms of journalism when the moment requires us to break the forms and try something different. And I just haven't seen enough of that, which is why I loved I loved what you did because it just it, it like it, it it approached the it approached this question from it was it was personal, but then it used a whole other medium to sort of try to get to what this is about, which is music in this case. But I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant for that reason. Thank you. Um, I mean, well, let me just make one other point, and then I'm going to oh, get sure. about it. Like this whole question of what should journalists bring to a moment like this? And, you know, it, it just reminds me, and I, that's why I think we're sort of lost in these debates. Because if you look at some of the, the moments that we now consider the greatest moments in journalism history, like the moment that the reporters turned on Johnson during the Vietnam War and said, these body estimates are fake. They're mm -hmm. wrong. And this mm -hmm. war has to end. And Cronkite got on the air and said the war has to end. If you look at reporters, you know, coming down with a full force uh, in favor of the civil rights movement and saying what is happening here is wrong. These protests are this change has to happen and it's a moral imperative. We look now and say that was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even Watergate at the time was controversial. All of these things were at the, in the moment, they were controversial. And people were saying, well, I don't know if, if that's really the thing that Cronkite should really be saying that. Or I don't mm -hmm. know if what CBS News reporters on the ground in Hanoi, that's, this is un-American for them to be saying that. Now, in hindsight, we look and say they were 100% right. And I think, yeah. that, I think that we're going to look back on this moment and say the same thing. The people who spoke the truth or what it was are going to be the heroes, I think. So. Oh, 
I mean, I really have been thinking a lot about to go back a little further and thinking about like what what Ida B. Wells was, what her what her mission was. Yeah. Um, you know, one of our, you know, the the one of the first black journalists in this country, um, definitely the most prominent during uh, after Reconstruction and chronicling the many, many lynchings and other atrocities happening to black people in this country um, around the turn of the century. Well, you know, that at the end of the of the 18th century um, and and a little bit beyond. And I I just feel like like you read what she wrote and you're just like this is just I mean there is nothing even controversial I mean to read it you know a hundred years later it's nothing controversial about this she is out doing a thing that needed to be done now at the time she was considered a radical <laughs> partially because she was a black woman yeah um but also because she was unsparing in her dismay at the things that were happening to black people. And I think that the assumption was that I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to intentionally maybe mischaracterize the perception of her at the time. But um, it was that she, she had an agenda because she was also black. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> she couldn't be um, neutral. Right. But I'm sorry, the the unexplained extrajudicial deaths of 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 lots and lots of black people is I don't know what I, I don't know what neutrality is under those circumstances. Yeah. Um, but the 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 thing about work like hers and eventually other what we I mean, I guess here's a question. Like the I the concept it's not really a question. I, it's just something that to to introduce that you can probably think about with me because I've not really given it much thought really until right now, but I like the, the term muckraker mm. um, has, it just always sounds so, it just has always sounded pejorative. Yeah. You know, it's just, as a, as a person who loves words and language, that word has just never sounded like, like a thing you should aspire to be. Yeah. It's literally somebody who rakes shit. Right. Right. Um, so I, I, I don't know. It's it. This is a moment where I have. Okay. So now I'm totally on board with you because I'm in the, I'm, I'm, I'm in the moment. <laughs> there've been so many times in the last couple of years where I'm just like, no, y'all just say it, just yeah. say it. Yeah. And that, that has been true in the newsroom. Um, I mean, everybody knows, I mean, lots of people who, who are aware of journalism and you know, the, the conversations that happen, among members of the masthead and then conversations that happened between the masthead and the newsroom um, about, about how to cover some things and under what we're talking about now, like, you know, the Trump administration, like how to cover, how to cover these people. Um, I think one thing that has been interesting about, about those conversations is that, it's unending. And the, I think that the thing that most people think about when they think about how to cover him, um, Donald Trump in particular, but maybe the, the entire apparatus is how to 
accurately capture what a bunch of liars they all are. (laughs) Um, While also holding space for the tradition of not saying such things about such people who lie, right? Um, I can remember when when the paper called Donald Trump a liar. Yeah. Um, Which was before the inauguration, I think, right? Right. Uh, I, I it, remember it being around the time of the... Oh, you mean like, like exactly when? Yeah, it was before the inauguration. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can remember people saying, well, you know, politicians... They do frequently. I mean, if we if we call him a liar, we probably have to call every every politician a liar. And well, my first response was like, "Well, let's do it." And also, let's there's call- this, this ridiculous debate about like, well, to call somebody a liar, you really have to know their intent, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's about intention. That's what makes a lie a lie. Um, and and I was like, well, no, if 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 they're if they're lying about something they clearly know is not true, then it's a lie. It's not just a slip of the tongue. Anyway. Well, can I be more specific about that question? I mean, to take that, well, I'm going to change the, um, the nature of the thing being covered, but like the question of whether or not someone's a racist. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's been, I mean, that conversation has happened a lot in the last three years too. Yeah. Um, and my number one most exasperating response to um, do you think like w- Judy Woodruff, God lover, you know, she is one of those people who is, you know, she is the old school. She is a traditionalist. Yeah. And you can tell, I listen to that show almost every day. You can tell in the last three years, she, her head has been spinning so many nights Yeah, because the old way of doing things just does not work anymore. Yeah. And there was a moment, there have been moments where she has really, really struggled with how to call racism on some of these, not just Trump, but like other people in the, like in the administration or in, in Congress. And and like a thing that when she will ask a, a Senator or a Congressperson, if they think that somebody, you know, Trump, for instance, is a racist, doesn't matter it doesn't it's not it's all politicians they will say this they have this stock answer which is i don't know what's in that person's heart yeah yeah and i'm like well i know what came out of their mouths right and i don't need to see their hearts (laughs) yeah Yeah. what they said was racist what they're doing is racist yeah yeah what is it about what's holding people back What's holding, I mean, let's not pick on Judy. What people? I mean. <laughs> well, I'm talking about, I'm talking about journalists who still are, are reluctant to say what's happening in front of them. Um, and you, frankly, you're seeing it still this week um, when there's all of this um, soft language and passive language around police beating up peaceful protesters. Mm-hmm. and. And um, there's all this sort of dancing around, um, you know, is it's complicated. And I mean, you know, frankly, our the mayor of New York City is engaging in this. Oh um, my God! Oh, yes, yes, he is. 
but and in a lot and too many journalists are too. I mean, we've had a couple of pieces at CJR this week about the the use, the different use, the kinds of words that are used to describe the protesters and the kinds of words that are that are used to describe the cops. Um, and it's it's to your point, it's like people are saying things that they're not seeing with their own eyes. So is it just a kind of like um and when you say which people, I don't know if you meant, or did you, were you, did you mean that there's a difference in the way that depending on whether you're a white reporter or a black reporter, you're, you're talking about this? I or, would say traditionally, yes. Yeah. And I think that traditionally you, I mean, as any old school black newsman, I mean, they don't even have to be that old, but I'm thinking specifically about like Brent, um, Brent Staples, who's one of the, who works in, yeah. Um, the editorial department of, yeah. of the Times, of the New York Times. And, you know, just stories he's told in public and to me about the expectation that he is supposed to, like, you know, his being a Black journalist is is somehow going to, like, is somehow going to negatively impact his ability to, to, to tell stories. Yeah. Um. And so that there is like a double standard by which he is being evaluated as a, as a professional reporter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, that's what I meant by, by like, depends on, you know, which, which people. Yeah. Um, because I also think that what we're talking about, the quite the thing that you're observing and the, and the thing that, um, CJR is, is observing in terms of the discrepancy between how the protesters are being written about and described versus how law enforcement is, is it really is a matter of institutionality, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of journalistic entities um, consider themselves to be institutions and have to comport themselves in a particular way. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a matter of, you know, I mean, we're talking about comportment. We're talking about respectability. We're yeah. talking about um, the, the, the necessary water carrying that such institutions feel they have to do for, for the, for the, for the, in the matter of fairness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, if you were a black, if you were, if you were, if you really were any journalist, I recently reread um, Calvin Trillin's civil rights reporting mm-hmm. um, that was collected in 1964. It's, it's a bunch of like a lot of his pieces were were collected and, mm-hmm. and published um, a couple years ago um, of all his great civil rights reporting. And so it's 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 all kinds of journalists. But if you were if you were a journalist during the civil rights era and your library of America has a book about, you know, reporting on, on, you know, those two books on reporting civil rights. Yeah. There was, there was just no way to pretend that what you were seeing and what was happening was, was in any way sensical if you were just a sentient being. Yeah. Um, And so the institution felt a responsibility to invade, not, you know, um, I mean, in Bay is probably strong, but ultimately, what the what the what all that reporting amounts to is is in Bay against. Um, but just thinking about like the way the Times was covered, or like not just the Times, the way the the way American media in general five years ago and six years ago was writing about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and the way that it wasn't only that they were taking Black Lives Matter seriously, they were sort of following what I can only describe as um, conservative talking points about what the organization wanted, right? Yeah. Which yeah. was really nothing, right? They, yeah. I mean, the, their name was their address in so many ways, right? Yeah. Like, um, I mean, one of the old school, some of the old school civil rights activists' frustration with Black Lives Matter in the beginning was that they didn't have, uh, they didn't have any demands greater than, yeah, um, their their stated demand. Yeah, um, and so I don't know. I just feel like there is a lot of that reluctance is carrying into this moment, but is really being challenged by a lot of younger um, journalists who didn't come up through the same system and, you know, whose careers began in, in this turmoil and and have only known how wrong things are in the last, you know, you know, explicitly with, with respect to the last 10 years or so. So let me talk to you about this this piece that you wrote like I, I i like i said i just thought it was extraordinary you what was the well let me just ask you straight up so what came first the moment at the sink or where you break down in tears when you're listening to this uh patty labelle song or had you been working on this already and this just boiled up as you were in the middle of processing all this um, it was, it's the latter. Uh-huh. I knew I, well, I had an idea for a piece I wanted to write that had nothing to do with, with poor George Floyd. Um, he hadn't, he hadn't been killed yet. Um, and I wanted to write something about genre and genre culture, right? Like, um, I wanted specifically about true crime. True crime uh-huh. and and black and black people, um, but not necessarily the the cell phone videos you were talking about. No. Like, yeah, okay, go no, ahead. No, I mean like I mean I was thinking specifically about um, the HBO documentary um, Atlanta's Missing and Murdered Children. Uh-huh. I wanted to write about that show, yeah, and I wanted to write about like why particular kinds of journalists. Or non-journalists who like can, who have to access it through journalism keep going back to this story, and you know I've got all kinds of moral and ethical questions. I guess they're not quite. I mean, they I, I can problematize the practices, but mostly I'll just leave it at questions about what what true crime as a genre is and and aspires to do. Yeah. Um. And I was also fascinated by. Are you talking, by the way, are you talking about like shows like Cops too? Well, or is that a different? different cops problem? isn't looking. I mean, but Cops is not. I mean, Cops is not a. Cops is not a work of journalism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cops is. Cops is pornography. Yeah. Okay, so that's a different, a whole different category. Right. Right. Okay. Yes. So I'm thinking specifically about people going in and doing cold casework. Yeah. Um, on, you know, the, 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 the sort of the realm of storytelling that is most captivating to Americans and especially in the podcasting and our yeah. podcasting era. Yeah. Um, and I like a lot of these shows. I'm a big serial fan. For yeah. instance. Um, 
But there's something about the formulas of 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 what true crime has become in this era that 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 don't satisfy the needs of a case like the Atlanta child murders. Uh-huh. And how in some ways it insults those deaths and it insults the entire meaning of of what it means of what it meant and still means for those kids to have died and gone missing and and the way in which the city willfully mishandled the investigation of those of those murders yeah and you know there's i don't know if you know this this case um and for for anybody who doesn't know it's you know in the late 1970s and early 80s 29 young black people went missing and were found murdered. Right. And 27 of them, I believe were children and two of them were adults. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it roiled the city for a long time. And this was a city that was in the process of becoming the Atlanta that we know today. This, Mm -hmm. this, um, you know, the, the capital of the South essentially. Yeah. Um, of the deep South. And, they did not want these murders to 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 obstruct that progress that Atlanta yeah. was making to become this this world city. And so, anyway, I was just thinking about I was thinking about how this HBO documentary documentary does an actually impressive job of fulfilling some of the requirements of true crime while really, really thinking about the pain of these mothers and these families that have these permanent vacancies in them. Yeah. And the the way that American culture keeps coming back to the story, there was a TV movie in 1985. There was a podcast. James Baldwin wrote a, wrote a book about this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the HBO show. There was um, uh, a, a season two of, of Mindhunter, uh, was about this case eventually. Um, and I just really wanted to take all of that culture and just write a piece about the, the, the insufficiencies and limitations, the sort of moral insufficiencies and sort of um, cr- structural limitations of true crime when it comes to dead Black people. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then George Floyd got killed. And I just thought, I can't I can't shoehorn this question into this into this man's murder. But I also I also was sort of I don't know if other people have had this experience who who've been tasked with writing about this as a critic. I'm a critic. I'm not a journalist um, in in the traditional sense. Um, this moment seemed to me because we've been here so many times before recently. Yeah. I felt like I had every, I was going to post, I'm not a big tweeter. I was going to post something on Twitter that was just like, if you asked me to write something today, I would just write what I wrote five years ago or six years ago. And it would have been a piece I wrote when I was at a site called Grantland yeah. um, about uh, this movie called Let's Be Cops opening um, on the same weekend that, that um, Michael Brown yeah. had been killed. Yeah. I just would have written this and I wrote this, about this movie, but I also wrote about law enforcement movies in general and America's love affair with police yeah. and policing and the the way that it's like who, like the ways that cops are centered in these stories. Anyway, 
So I did not want to write that story. Um, I wanted, I had been, and then I knew what was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen after a couple weeks or, you know, after like a couple days, if I hadn't told an editor that I was working on something. So I made a point to mention that I was doing this Mm. missing and murdered children's story. But then, you know, George Floyd's being murdered made me shift. I got a question from the top, from the top of the newspaper about whether I was going to write anything, um, which usually means we want you to write something. Yeah. Um, and so I was really struggling because I feel like um, this is a long way of answering this question, but I do feel like the thing about this moment for a lot of people is I have said it all. I have said it all. Mm-hmm. We have been here before. Um, no matter how different this feels in terms of its moment, um, we have been here before. And I don't have like a quote new unquote thing to say about that or or a newly interesting thing to say about that. And I had like taken a pass at starting a piece. I had a few days to write it. So I wasn't under a lot of time pressure. Um, and I also don't appreciate, and I think a lot of journalists have this, um, where or a lot of writers have this, where, you know, you don't really, I mean, this is a human thing. This is like human beings don't do this, where they, you know, you're in a stressful situation that you don't acknowledge is stressful because you're living a day-to-day life. Yeah. I had that with this. And so the moment that you're asking about with, with me at the sink, you know, I had to come back from the market. I was going to make myself some greens. Um, and I've been listening to all these Patti LaBelle records because I love Patti LaBelle and I wanted to go through all the albums and just understand how she wound up in 1986 and 19, 1984 through 86, like Beverly Hills cop soundtrack to the, to the winner in you. Um, she has this really good two year run. Anyway, I wanted to sort of like build to that point by listening to all the old Patti LaBelle solo albums. Um, and I had not heard her cover of If You Don't Know Me By Now in years. Let's pause just to hear uh, a snippet of it. So you were saying you went back and you heard this, this song. I had not heard that song in years, years. And there was something about, um, I just heard it in, in a totally new way. And I heard it as the answer to a question. I heard it as the answer to my frustration as, a, as, a, as an American, as a human being, as a person who has watched some of this footage multiple times, um, either because... I've been forced to, or like listen to the footage if I, as a radio listener, or, you know, I'm a, I'm a big New York one watcher. Um, you know, I've seen, I have seen enough, um, but I've built up, you simultaneously build up a tolerance for it. Not that it doesn't affect you, but you're able to, you know, I, as a, as a, as a writer and as a critic, I kind of want to know, I kind of want to know what I'm writing about. Um, and I could not have appreciated how much that song was really speaking to all the stress and anxiety that I've been feeling and how her 
they're dramatizing the decision, which is not in the original song. The, the original song is, is a straight up like, I, you know, we are going to break up if you can't understand this is how I am song. Powerful in, it, in, its, own, in its own right. But domestic. Yes. But there was something about Patti LaBelle walking this live audience through her state of mind and her getting from a point of being like, I, I thought you knew me, but you don't. And you know what? If you don't know, I'm out. I'm out. I can't do this. Because we've been, in her, in her version of this story, it's been 10 years of whatever mm-hmm. this has been. And mm-hmm. I'm, if you don't know this at this point, I can't help you. I cannot help you. I'm leaving. Yeah. The words are you'll never, never, never know me. I mean, the never, never, never. Yes. Um, and so I was like, this is it. This to me is 400 years right here in those three words. Um, and I just lost it. <laughs> I just, I just, I was overcome with, um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like everybody who's had a crying fit, you know, it's kind of, you're like in a fugue state, but it's also like a very clear emotional moment. Um, for as, as disoriented as you are, you know, physiognomically, you are, I mean, at least for me, when I have these moments, I know exactly why I'm crying. I know exactly what's upset me and I can see it so vividly. Um, my brain was connecting the, I mean, there was a visceral part because her singing, it's just to be clear, like she is, she eventually is singing through the thing that she was, she had previously been talking about. And now she's just like, it's all, it's all ad living. Uh Um, Yeah. And she's just, you know, using one of the greatest voices in the history of recorded music to say, I have had enough. I'm, I'm out. This, this cannot work anymore because I have done my part and you need to do yours. And until you do yours, I can't help you. I'm gone. And I just feel like that's where a lot of us are right now. I, I really, really do. And the one upside of, of the protests, at least from what I can see, is that, you know, it's not just a bunch of, it's not just black people and, you know, some other brown people out there marching. It's, it's, it's everybody. Um. But nonetheless, the frustration um, and exasperation with having to go, th- you know, over having to go through this again, um, and, and more brutally, I might add, than, than anybody had probably ever seen. I mean, there's been some really bad, terrible killings, but none with this kind of um, detachment on behalf of the murderers, right? We're like the whole, I mean, everybody's been hearing about systems and systemic systems and systemic, but there was something truly systemic about the death itself. Like yeah. there's a process by which black people are murdered under these circumstances. Yeah. And they have been, they have been institutionalized within the forces themselves. Those men were doing what they had been trained to do. That and was also, the formation. Also the role of the phone the fact that they did it while they knew oh, yeah. they were being recorded is yeah. ad- adds to the, the the fact that they knew they would be protected. Well, that's the impunity part, right? Like yeah. 
that's the impunity part of of the frustration that that a lot of us have, which is like, y'all know you can get away with murder. This is the thing about Trump, right? I mean, his his the most famous thing he has said, I would say, in this entire aspect of his life, is the I could walk down Fifth Avenue, shoot somebody, and not get arrested. Yeah. That is that is the most American thing anybody has ever said. Any white person has ever said. So do you are you saying then that the you'll never, never, never know me? You you're you have a level of you have a sliver of optimism that maybe people are finally seeing this? Yeah, well the thing about that lyric is it's conditional, right? If you don't, yeah, at this point, you're not going to. But if you if you if you if you do or you kind of do or, or you're open to or whatever, there is hope. But there are a lot of people. I mean, and I think that like the, the amazing thing about this moment is that there's there's like polling now that that suggests that there people who were skeptical about even the term Black Lives Matter years ago are now. I don't know what is going on, by the way, but the helicopter is just like having a field day over my house. Um, I don't know what has been going on for people in the last five years, but there's something about having to watch that man on George Floyd's neck that has gotten people. I mean, I'm seeing there are black lives matter signs all over my house. There used to be the, the, the only the people, only the, like the, 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 the hippiest hippie dippiest, uh, white people in in different in certain neighborhoods would have a blm sign no you got white kids in park slope oh yeah no they're yes they're all over they're all over the place now i mean and like people white people are holding them up did you see see the street in dc no oh my god the mayor of dc has oh the street the thing that happened today Yeah, 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 yeah yeah i think that's extraordinary it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. But again, I mean, you know, that mayor, she's, well, whatever. She, she's the best. Um, <laughs> um, Wesley, let me uh, just, do you have anything to say about this um, Tom Cotton situation? Um, I, I, I assume that you agreed with your colleagues at the paper. Yes, I do agree with the decision to, um, I'd sign the petition. I agree with the petition. Um I think that this was a really, I mean, I think a lot of businesses and newsrooms, companies, places that employ a lot of people and a lot of different people um, are having these reckonings. And like we've been talking, I mean, you and I started talking about the status quo. I think that, you know, there is a hatted up to hearness on all fronts. It isn't just with black people being killed by the police. It is, I have had it with like these companies talking out of both sides of their mouths about what they value. I think there is a, there is an exasperation with this idea of giving voice and, and, and space to points of view that are actively dangerous to, to the, that endanger people's lives which I think was was the feeling and the reality of, of running that Tom Cotton um, op-ed. Could he have a better name for this situation? Oh, well, 
<laughs> yes. He no, he could not. No, <laughs> he he could not. Um, and I feel like there is. I don't know. I feel like there. Here's a controversial. I mean, that's not controversial, but like, here's the thing I will say. In the in, as a person who believes, I I am um, middle uh, centrist, neutral. Neutral is the wrong word, but like, I do think there was a way that that editorial could have run that would have been exasperating and eye rolling, but not infuriating, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a there's framing that could have happened in that piece. There are questions that whoever edited it could have asked whoever, you know, whoever wrote it on Tom Cotton's behalf or, you know, Tom Cotton himself to like, to just, to just set it up better. And we're just like, here's a way to do this so that it doesn't, you can advocate for this crazy position you have about the American military being on our streets right now that will seem no less crazy, but will also make it clear that this is not a, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not here to defend this editorial and we shouldn't have run it almost period, but especially in this moment. Right. Um, but I think that some of the thinking was that, you know, they were thinking about it running in a, on a print page and not on, on online, which is like, I, I'm sorry, what y'all put out so many editorials a day. Yeah. That have that don't appear on any page. Um I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I I, I am a person who signed the petition. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you all day. I, I really appreciate what you're doing and I think this piece was amazing and I, I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot. So you can read CJR's ongoing coverage of the protest and the ongoing coronavirus crisis and all the, how all these stories have all sort of come together at CJR.org and through our daily email and media today. Thanks for listening. See you next week.